Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley. With me as always is my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. Today, we're going to start with some thoughts on a stock market at record highs, and then we're going to move on to Chinese manufacturing giant Foxconn looking to invest some serious money into the U.S. So, Chris, let's start with this stock market at record highs. The S&P 500 pushed all-time highs last week. It kind of flirted with 24.75. It's up 10% year-to-date, about 15% since Trump was elected president. And, you know, I just kind of turned on WallStreetJournal.com, and three of the headlines right on the front page of the market section were, and these are quotes, Tech is no bubble, but the stock market might be. The second one is market steady climb in 2017 defies historic odds. And the third one was short sellers give up as stocks run to new records. And kind of along those lines, there was a little headline about Goldman Sachs came out with a report this morning that said the stock market has an elevated valuation on almost every metric currently. Even the Fed in their March notes did mentions about asset prices kind of above the historic norms. So, Chris, we can give those asset prices above historic norms. We talk about the state of the market about once per quarter. So I thought with those headlines out there, now is as good a time as any. What do you think about all this and uh, kind of where you've seen opportunities in the market? Well, I'll share my thoughts on the market overall, although when I do, listeners might take solace that I really mostly think about individual companies, not the market overall. And when I share my thoughts, maybe they think, geez, you really shouldn't think about these overall. Boats and broker ads. The first thing I noticed is there's kind of frothy, smug broker client kind of egging people on to uh, be more in the market, uh, you kind of start to see some of those things at a market high. Not as much as during the tech bubble, but there's kind of subjective things like that, that uh, intermediaries and brokers kind of pushing people, egging them on. The statistics that people use to look at the overall market, I think they each have their shortcomings. And I think we've kind of ticked through them in the past, but I'll just say Schiller PE or the CAPE ratio is over 80% above its historic so, mean. Let me just, CAPE ratio is cyclically adjusted price earnings. So yeah. instead of just taking one year's earnings, which can be artificially inflated or deflated, they kind of take earnings across a whole cycle. So go ahead. And, and And I think that has some validity to kind of smooth that out a bit. So that ratio is just over 30. Uh, Its historic mean is about 17. The other one that Buffett says is probably the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment. According to Buffett, the ratio of the market cap to GDP uh, is currently the market cap's 135% of GDP. That one is statistically is not an incredibly a rigorous stat. It's a little bit funny in some ways to compare market cap to GDP, but as one thing to glance at, Buffett glances at it, I glance at it. And then uh, if you look across country markets, the US does look expensive compared to all but two other country markets in terms of that CAPE ratio. And it's at the very high end on every other metric, looking at equity prices compared to earnings, cash, book value, dividends, sales, each has their flaws, but each, you know, you look at as a collage and you don't say that the U.S. is very cheap compared to other markets. And then last one that I would just tick off is I'd keep track of retail investor liquidity and market comfort in stats such as closed-end fund average discounts. They're tiny right now, 5% for equity funds, 3% for bond funds, 4% for closed-end funds overall. And I think that that looks a little bit more how markets do closer to a top than to a bottom. Yeah. So look, I, I think that's exactly it. The, the whole the whole discussion was these Wall Street Journal headlines, tech is no bubble, but stock market, all, all these things are kind of indicative of things you see towards market tops, short mm-hmm. sellers quitting. And 
I guess my counterpoint to all this would be markets certainly do look expensive compared to historical valuations. But the big question is, you know, are they crazy expensive given today's ultra low interest rate environment? Like there used to be the old Fed model where they said, hey, take the 10 year treasury rate and take the inverse of the P ratio that gives you the earnings yield and compare the two. If stocks are yielding more than treasuries, then stocks are undervalued. If they're yielding less than treasuries, stocks are overvalued. And if you do that with a, you know, today's two and a half percent or so 10 year treasury yield, you're actually talking about a P ratio that should be pushing kind of 40 times. So it doesn't look hugely expensive compared to that interest rate metric. And then the only other thing I would say is, you know, there was a little article that said 83% of equity managers think stocks are overvalued right now. You generally don't see 83% of people say, oh yeah, that's overvalued at a market top. That's kind of more consistent with kind of just an average market. So market valuations are certainly high, but there is a lot of fear out there. And then the last thing is it's tough to really point to any type of massive bubble. In 2000, you had tech and in 2006 and seven, you had real estate and energy, oil and gas. Today, it's kind of bank stocks have run up a lot, but and you can quibble with the valuations of a couple of them. But in general, they're also creating massive economic value. So it's kind of tough to point to something that's really driving massive overvaluation. I, I don't know. What do you think? I, I have such mixed feelings about looking at it compared to the bond market. And especially if you look at treasuries, you know, you could say on one hand, their P.E. ratio, if you just invert it is incredibly expensive even compared to equity today. On the other hand, it looks to me sort of contrived, artificial, possibly temporary, although it's been a number of years since the financial crisis, that uh, kind of a market rate for a treasury would be very different than with just massive monetary uh, intervention that we've had that we are removing so slowly. So what concerns me about it is the appearance of artificiality to the treasury market. But that being said, geez, you know, it's lasted this long. It could last a lot longer. Yeah. And then on the artificiality, like, yes, there is still some quantitative easing in mm-hmm. the Fed. But, you know, it's been seven, eight, nine years. It's tough to really argue that somebody can control an interest rate lower than its norm for seven, eight, nine years, right? Like when the Bank of England tried to do that in the early 90s with the pound, they, they got busted and that was at a much lower scale than kind of interest rates. So, I don't know, it's tough for me to say, now if you were going to say investors as a whole are overly invested in bonds and interest rates. I guess I could see that, but you know, it's just, it's tough. And if you're going to say bonds are overvalued and stocks are overvalued, like bonds are the really the main, I I don't know. Anyway, where are you seeing bargains, Chris? With prices high and volatility low, I mean, I guess I could say I see value in all sorts of risk insurance, insurance that I normally would like to write, you know, where in the past or in certain circumstances where you can look at whole categories and say, hey, I can be short uh, volatility, I can write optionality. I think that that is uh, dead. So the kind of cowardly way to think about it is in practice, waiting and watching, but opportunistically saying, hey, you can buy all sorts of risk insurance in this market, super cheap. You can buy optionality on the upside, uh, super cheap still. And that 
whole price environment just pushing volatility really low kind of inverts where I would normally see mechanisms to uh, exploit for profit. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, one of the Wall Street Journal headlines we mentioned was market steady climb in 2017 defies historic odds. And that whole thing was talking about, hey, the market has just been a steady climb up. And this is the first time ever that we've gone through the first half of the year and we haven't had a drop of like three or five percent mm-hmm. or something like this has been the most consistently steady bull market on record. I think you're exactly right. Opportunities to kind of take bets against it or buy insurance are getting priced incredibly cheap because of that historically low volatility. If that does reverse, I think it's going to be interesting. The other place I'm increasingly focused on, I'll just throw mine out here, and we've talked about it before, is there has been a massive trend to passive investing, index investing, computerized, hedge, high-frequency trading investing. The place I've really been interested is things where it has a value that a computer can't capture. The one we've talked about before, and I'll mention it again on the podcast, you know, something like a dish or a sprint, which have massive, massive swaths of spectrum. And in particular, dish, it's bought all the spectrum, but it hasn't used any of that spectrum to date, that wireless spectrum that, you know, could be used to either build a wireless network or build an internet of things network. That doesn't appear anywhere on their balance sheet. It doesn't really, or it doesn't really appear anywhere on the balance sheet. It doesn't appear anywhere on the income statement. It actually hurts their income statement a little bit. That's value that a computer can't really capture. It's value that a fundamentalist has to go through, value that spectrum out by hand. Things like that, things like tracking stocks that can't be put into any indexes and whose value has to be, you know, you kind of have to extrapolate its value elsewhere. I, I think that's where I've really been increasingly focused recently. That's a great answer. Great. Unless you want any other words there, we can turn over to Foxconn. Foxconn. Okay, so let, let's talk about Foxconn. This morning, news broke that the Chinese manufacturing giant Foxconn, they're really best known for assembling Apple's iPhones. Some analysts estimate they make more than 150 iPhones per year, which is just kind of a mind-boggling scale. They're nearing a decision to build a plant in Wisconsin that can make large screen TVs in particular. And this is interesting because Foxconn doesn't have a U.S. presence. They traditionally, they're a Chinese manufacturing giant. They make all their stuff in China. Now, they've previously said they're looking to invest $10 billion in the U.S. and maybe seven states. If they do actually end up building this uh, plant in Wisconsin, it would be by far the largest investment in manufacturing plants since Trump's election. So Chris, I wanted to turn it over to you. What do you think about their decision? Is this a good business decision? Is this a good political decision? Is this maybe a little bit of both? It's a hard case to make in terms of labor and other costs. You know, uh, U.S. labor costs really are competitive in certain areas, tend to be in the very, very most high-tech precision type manufacturing types of medical devices and some computer stuff, but gee, not just flat panel screens. The products in question can be made much cheaper in Asia. So it looks to me like a political SOP. Higher costs just get passed on to consumers. So I don't see the case on the cost side. That being said, the factory implementation of much bigger screens. It actually is kind of easier to do it from scratch. It's interesting to see how much of the technology moved, the forefront of technology moved from Japan to Korea. In part because Korea like was starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. So they actually could start over and a lot of the Koreans leapfrogged ahead of the Japanese. Will they do that again in Wisconsin or Detroit? No, probably not. Uh, but, but at least kind of a, a starting from scratch effort in this case can make sense. Yeah. 
this kind of reminds me, you know, like if you're going to an emerging market right now and they're building out all of their infrastructure, you know what they don't do? They don't build out landline telephones. They just right. build a, a giant wireless network. Exactly. If you're Foxconn, like those Chinese plants they have right now, they need to be running them 24-7 to produce these smartphones. So if you're building a new plant, maybe the U.S. makes sense because you can just go kind of scrap everything you've done, really amp up the robotics, the automation. And maybe if you amp up the robotics and automation, you have to hire a lot fewer workers that can offset a lot of the extra cost of U.S. workers because it's a lot more robotic and you don't have to ship these flat screens uh, as far from China to the U.S. And that's particularly something they mentioned when they said they were looking to build. Their shipping costs are increasingly expensive for these flat screen products. Building them here might make sense once you factor all that in. Yeah, the time to market makes a difference, but it would also make a difference if they were trying to build these in Mexico with very low cost uh, labor. You know, a, a generation ago, the kind of nationalist trade policies that the U.S. has been emphasizing recently really were seen as bad economics. But today they're practically incoherent, given how many of the component parts come from spots all across the globe. If you really wanted to say, I'm going to live made in America, you know, it's really hard. And there's a lot of paradoxes of foreign uh, tech that has U.S. labor and parts and vice versa. Yeah. And I think this is something we mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts on kind of the, the made in America bringing jobs back here. Like one of the things Foxconn has consistently said, and I think there was an example in Brazil was, hey, if you want us to make the parts in the U.S. or something, we can do it. You know, it's just we're going to raise prices and consumers are going to end up paying that. Or some of the things they did in Brazil was you would say, like an almost completed phone from China to Brazil, and then they just have a plan in Brazil that would literally just snap the phone together or something. You know, you can do that. And along those lines, you know, I do think this could make some business sense for Foxconn with automation and stuff, but I think it's definitely a political play. Look, I don't think it's an accident they're looking to build in Wisconsin, Paul Ryan's home state. I don't think it's an accident they threw out a nice big 10 billion round number when they talked about this. Obviously, Donald Trump's number. And I don't think it's an accident. Hey, you build, you build a U.S. plant here. It almost serves as an economic hedge on future trade wars, right? Like, not only do you generate the good political goodwill, but if they do jack up taxes on iPhones coming into the U.S., you can start building them in the U.S. at your plant you've already built. So, I think along all of those lines, it makes a lot of sense. As we discussed earlier, you know, buying insurance might be cheap. This could be kind of a cheap insurance policy for them. Also, with the PRC going after some of their top executives in terms of their behavior, investing money abroad, this also gives a lot of the individual executives cover if they want homes or some assets yep. in the U.S. as individuals, gives them a little political diversification, and uh, that could be nice, too. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, 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 we, and we know Donald Trump likes the number $10 billion already. <laughs> Already. So when he invents numbers, that's one that you really, it appeals to him. It, not as good as the $1 trillion or $1 million jobs or whatever, but $10 billion, always a good number. Uh, Chris, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? Nope. Great. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and read us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. You know, now that the podcast, we're getting it edited, so hopefully the sound quality is better. I mean, I just got a deluge of email saying how manly my voice sounds now. I don't know about you, Chris. <laughs> I've heard the same thing about your voice. <laughs> Great. So disclosures, Chris, I think we're long a little dished, Dish. and I don't think there's anything else we mentioned that we're long. Nope. Great. So that's all the time we have for today, and we'll talk to you guys later this week.